I want to share this with you um, before we even get started here. You'll see, you'll see Robbie at the end of the PowerPoint that we're going to walk through. Um, Robbie's a man I've been discipling for about two years now. He's being discipled by Sean, whom I've discipled for about four years now. And uh, really, I just get to spend time with Robbie and pour into him. Sean's the man that's primarily leading him uh, to the foot of the cross and making lordship decisions now in his life. He's been called to full-time ministry. Robbie texts quite a few people every morning faithfully. Um, and <laughs> you, got, you know somebody like that? That's good. That's good. That's encouragement. Um, but Robbie sent this this morning. I was just looking at it. It's 1 Corinthians 12, 25. It says, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. You know, that's what God really wants is for there not to be any division in the body, no schism, nothing funky with us, right? And he's arranged every part of the body the way that he sees fit. How many of you ever think or wonder or hear or talk or whatever about spiritual gifts? You guys think about that stuff? One thing I've come to understand about spiritual gifts is that God in his sovereignty and his mercy most of the time does not allow us to have, you don't discover or uncover or unlock a gift. If my sons go open their Christmas presents on December 21st, they get in trouble. You follow me? Okay. It's a gift. God gives it. The giver gives it. And the giver gives the gift at the appropriate time. Make sense? God wants our character developed. Character development trumps spiritual gifting every time. Jesus did not consider it a thing to be grasped. Equality with God. He became a humble servant and I... He learned obedience. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? So what a privilege we have to develop our character and then as the giver sees fit to give us gifts, then we can edify the body. We can build up the body. If you have a gift, if you're operating in a gift, uh, if you're using your gift, then I hope you understand it's not for you at all. My gift is teaching. And what that looks like, the heart that God's given me, some of you guys are teachers. I want to encourage you right now. Give me truth to learn, souls to care for, lest I wither up and die. That's how I function. So think about that. The thing I want you to think about the most, though, this morning is is developing your character. Becoming godly men. That's not some arbitrary pie-in-the-sky thing that just a few people can, can figure out. Okay? It comes by walking with God, succeeding in life, the practical areas of life, not Joel Osteen's version of success. Okay? I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel or a social gospel or we even now have a sexual gospel. I'm talking about success as defined by God. We're going to look at that. There's a 
very clear and practical scriptural precedent for this. Why do you want to succeed in life? Because the rest of the world around you, regardless of where they are in their walk, regardless of how hot they are or cold they are, they're designed to respond to righteousness. Human beings are designed to respond to righteousness. And that's not just a big, funny-sounding church word. We're going to talk all about it in a minute. Unity in the body begins with you becoming a godly man. You guys want to be godly men? Good. Good. We're going to go through this PowerPoint, and um, I just want to go ahead and tell you I'm going to dump the truck on you. Okay? All of this, right down to the PowerPoint itself, I will email to Barry, and Barry can pass it on to you. In fact, Luke already has it. So you can have this whole slideshow. You can go back and review it, uh, take notes. Uh, you can teach it yourself. If anything's true up here, it's God's. It's not mine. It's not every man of warriors or the navigators, or right? If it's true, it's God's. So use this. Every man of warrior is just a tool. Jesus Christ is the capital A answer for every problem, period. And God sees fit to give certain times and certain generations tools that they can use that will spearhead them toward Messiah. And this, that's what this is. This is just simply a tool. How many of you are going through Every Man a Warrior, have been through it, are considering going through it? Okay, about half of you. <clears throat> Men's ministry that worked. That's a pretty bold statement, huh? Well, let's figure that out. Let's find out if that's true. You guys feel free to stand up if your butt gets numb. Walk around if your back gets stiff. You're not going to offend me. Father, we praise you that you have seen fit to love us, to not condemn us, to teach us and to show us that we in fact choose to stay in condemnation. We choose to stay in the darkness. We praise you that you are true, that you alone know everything, that you alone are all-powerful, that you alone are everywhere that you alone are eternal and that you alone cannot be turned off or turned down. You're immutable. Father, we love you because you first loved us with a pure and perfect love. God, forgive us for our complacency as men. Forgive us for our pride, our lust, and greed. Our anger. And malice. And bitterness. Lord and where we've coveted. Where we've desired the things that are not born of your spirit. Have mercy on us, Lord. Show us that which is true. Help us to see and understand clearly 
that you have not left us alone, that you have given us understandable and doable commands that will impact eternity. Father, thank you. Lord, I need you this morning. I need you, Father. And I love you so much. Amen. <clears throat> Men's ministry that works. Oh, that's so cool. You guys see this okay? Do I need to move over here to the side? Can you see over me? John, you're good. Okay. So, what are we going to do? That's the question that most people ask. What are we going to do to reach men? What are we going to do to draw men in? What are we going to do to get men here? <clears throat> we should be asking, what are we going to do to transform men into the image of Jesus Christ? That's a better question. And then how are we going to do it? Discipleship is a noun. It's a thing. Disciple making is a verb. It's an action. Jesus didn't say go do discipleship. He said go make disciples. It's different. There's a difference. Okay? It's not a weekend we have. It's not a retreat that we have. It's a taking up of your cross and following him daily. Jesus set this standard. Okay? So if you want to be a disciple, you're going to make disciples. Don't call yourself a disciple unless you're making disciples. Don't call yourself a disciple unless your life is not disciplined to the point that someone around you is changing their life to be more like you, imitating you as you imitate Christ. Does that make sense? There are a lot of things we can do. These are all good. These are, in fact, some of these are ministry partners of us. We've got, experience, we've got Dr. Blackaby's Experiencing God up here. That's a wonderful work. There was a conference that he was at, and John... Degner, one of our EMAL staff, was there, and there were about 500 men that came and heard Henry speak, and then afterward, about 200 lined up to have him sign the book, and um, John was emceeing the whole thing, and he asked Henry after it was all over and the men were gone, he said, how do you keep this in perspective? And he said, Dr. Blackaby began to cry, and he said, I stay broken over the reality of what God has shown me that maybe 5% of the men who come to my conferences and shake my hand and buy my books and read my books, about 5% of them will actually do what's in there. God's with the doers. Okay? He's not with the thinkers or the talkers. God's with the doers, right? <clears throat> We've got plenty of things to look at, plenty of good resources. I've been a part of 17 different men's ministries over the years. And the thing that's different about this men's ministry is that it helps us change this reality. It helps a man walk into the reality that he was meant to have a relationship, not a religion. Every element of the kingdom of heaven is formed through relationship. Okay? <clears throat> Look at these statistics. For every 10 men in the church, can you guys hear me when I turn my head like this? Okay. That's, that's just my ear. Just want to make sure. For every 10 men in the church, nine will have kids that leave the church. Eight won't be satisfied with their jobs. Six will pay monthly minimums on credit cards. Five have a major problem with pornography. That number is too low. Christianity Today released a study 
last year that said that uh, from Barna, George Barna, the leading researcher in Christendom, 53% of our senior pastors after a two-year blind study, 53% of our senior pastors regularly look at pornography. Let that sink in. That should break your heart. We could have a whole other conference on that alone. There are over 350,000 evangelical churches in this country. And over half of the senior authority, the senior leadership, is regularly and willfully committing adultery and idolatry. Those two just don't happen to sound alike, by the way. Let that sink in. Let that break your heart. Regularly, what does that mean, Adam? Three or more times a week. My experience with pornography is that whatever a man tells me right off the bat, I can pretty much double it because he's testing to see how I'm going to react, see if I'm going to condemn him. Most of the time, I tell him that I was addicted to pornography at one time, and I tell him how that I've been free for years, completely free, with no slip-ups, because I have a Savior that I'll walk with daily, and I love him more than I love looking at naked images of women that are not my wife. So I've stopped. He has more to offer me. Okay, I'm not going to preach a sermon on that. Four will get divorced affecting more than a million children each year. Now, this is from, again, another ministry partner of ours, Dr. Pat Morley, the book No Man Left Behind. You guys familiar with that? Does this seem anywhere near relevant to you? Do these statistics resonate with you? Okay, well, this begs the question, if we're going to get different results, don't we need to do something different? I mean, what's the definition of insanity? Exactly, you guys know this. Right? So we want to look at what the Bible says about men's ministry. And the Bible has a lot to say about men's ministry. In fact, you can't find a more clearly defined and complete, thorough precedent for ministry anywhere in Scripture than you can for men's ministry. Maybe the Levitical model for the priests in the Old Testament. But God is very clear what he expects. And here's the good news, guys. I love, I'm standing in North Dakota. There are four-wheel drives everywhere. Man, every time I shake a guy's hand, I got to get ready for it. You guys, man, you guys know how to shake hands. Okay? It's practical. Men's ministry is practical. Oh, this is good news. This is good news. It's not mysterious. It's practical. Okay, so what did Jesus have to say about this? What did Paul have to say about this? Well, Jesus gave us the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Yes, I know the rest of that passage. Of all nations, we're really good at that. Everybody gets excited to go to Africa, but they'll keep jacking off right up until the time they leave. They'll keep talking down to their wife right up until the time they leave. They won't read Scripture. They won't memorize verses. They won't meditate on the Word. But they'll go to Africa because that's glamorous. They're going to save the world. We're going to convert Uganda. No, you're not. Because God sees what's done in the secret place. 
Jesus knows this. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Oh, you forgot a part, Adam. No, I didn't. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Yes, and that's not a less important thing. Going to the nations is not a less important thing. All three of those components of the Great Commission are important. We have to learn first what Jesus said and what he commanded before we can do it. Then he, ha he has to see it before he can bless it. God's with the doers. He's not with the talkers. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Okay? This is what Jesus says. These are high standards. Okay? This is his idea. What does Paul say? 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. You can turn there and follow along with me. I'll share the passage with you. Paul said, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And now someone else is building on it. But no man can lay any foundation except for the one that is already laid, which is, anybody there yet? We're interacting this morning. I'm going to come down off the, off the podium up here. No man can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is, say it again, the man, Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. Doesn't matter what version you're holding in your hands right now. Is day capitalized? Why? That's judgment day. It's kind of a big deal. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. Fire from Adam's backyard when he's burning brush? No, God's holy fire. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, what happens? He will receive his reward. If it is burned up, what happens? He will suffer loss. He himself, listen carefully, he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Why didn't God zap you to heaven the moment you surrendered your life to him? The moment you cried out and said, save me. I need you, Jesus. I repent. He has work for you to do. He has work for you to do here. And he's given you a blueprint. This is good news. Question, what happens when fire hits gold, silver, precious stones? They melt and, say it, it purifies it. The dross is gone. I wonder if that, that is the jewels that then gets put in our crown that we cast at his feet. I think it may be. What happens when fire hits wood, hay, or straw? It's consumed. There's nothing left. Man, you're working on your eternal reward right now. That's what's happening. Isn't this good news? Because this has answers for how to make life work. So how are we going to do this? I'm a how guy. You guys are how guys, right? You want to know how. Where's Greg? You sell equipment? How much does it cost? Like the biggest, most expensive piece. <laughs> Seven to ten million? I was thinking 300,000. 
If I buy a piece of equipment from Greg, am I going to go, thanks, bro? I got this. Or am I going to go, Greg, I just put $7 million down on this. Will you please come out and spend a weekend with me showing me how it works so I don't kill myself and tear it up? Shouldn't we do that with the Word of God? Shouldn't we have that approach, that humble approach with the Word of God? This is how this works. Intimacy with Christ. Everybody okay with that word intimacy? Go like, do this. Okay, I'm going to tell you a quick story. There's a church in D.C., a large First Baptist church just outside of D.C. that I minister in and have for years. Over half the population is military. And there are friends of mine there that are in the Secret Service. There are friends of mine there that brief the Secretary of Defense and are high level in the Pentagon and all this kind of stuff. This one guy, his nickname is Tanker Taylor. He was a tank commander in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years. At 43, he had had both hips replaced because of his foot soldiering in the Middle East. He had two companies of men while he, were, he was over there. All eight of them died. He's the only one that survived. And after I uh, co-led a conference on intimacy and purity... Uh, at the end of the weekend, we were sitting there having lunch, <clears throat> and he said, Adam, man, I love your passion. And I know anytime it starts out like that, I know where we're headed. Adam, I love your passion, and man, it's just, it's great, and I love everything that you're saying, but man, <clears throat> this, um, this intimacy with Christ, man, I don't know how that resonates with, you know, men. And I'm sitting here, and I'm going, Lord, how do I answer? How do I answer this so that I edify so that I encourage, so that I build up. And the Lord spoke one word to my mind. He said, David. And I go, boom, I got it. So I let, I let him finish, and I said, I said, brother, you're a warrior, right? And he said, well, yeah. I said, no, I'm telling you, you're a warrior. Let me compliment you. I said, literally, you are a warrior. I said, let me ask you a question. Have you ever killed a man that was about 10 feet tall with a rock and then cut his head off with his own sword. And he put his head in his hands. I said, this is not new. Have you read the Psalms? Have you read Jesus' prayer in John 17? Have you read Song of Songs? Have you read Genesis to Revelation? It's all a love story about how we respond to our bridegroom, about how we respond to our Savior to our maker so that's where I'm coming from when I talk about intimacy with Christ man you can minister in every way and I don't care if you're in ministry or not if you're a man and if you're a Christian man you're a minister you're the prophet and priest over your household and then it goes out from there if you minister from your experience you're instantly limited right out of the gate you're handicapped right out of the gate if you minister from your intellect you're handicapped right out of the gate because you're finite you can't have enough experience. There's always going to be a guy that comes in the door that can beat my testimony wow factor. There's always going to, I sat with Dean last night at his house, and he showed me so many things about the state of North Dakota. I mean, I'm going to have to go home and review. That man is brilliant, but he's not God. Okay? And he knows that. Anybody that knows Dean knows that. He's a very humble man. So what do we want to minister from how do we want to live and move and breathe and have our being from our intimacy with christ 
from that secret place. That's why in Every Man a Warrior, we champion a love relationship with God. And there is a precedent for this, and we're going to talk about it right before I leave today. It's the first and greatest commandment. That sermon's coming. This is what we want to build on. Why? Because Jesus said it was number one. There's nothing ahead of it. There's nothing ahead of it. And it's the greatest. That means it carries with it the heaviest implications. Okay? Now, what does that look like? Okay? What we do is we have our love relationship with God, and then we have a quiet time. We have a practical way for how to look at the Word of God how to memorize, meditate, read, study, hear, apply, and obey the Word of God. Because that's why we have this. We have this so that we can do this. Amen? Salvation and all of sanctification hinges on whether or not we agree with God and what He says about us and whether or not we do the thing. Now, we're not saved by works, but James said it like this. Show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith with works. If you have to tell me you're a Christian, I need to see, I, if I can't see evidence of it, the proof's in the pudding, man, right? And again, that's why God has left us here. We are saved by grace through faith alone. One of the things that makes me cringe is when a man says, and the older he is when he says this, the harder I cringe on the inside. Just a sinner saved by grace. That phrase bothered me for so long and I didn't know why. And then I asked the Lord about it after years and the Lord said because you're not designed to just be a sinner saved by grace you're designed to be a sinner saved by grace and a man who walks with me we want to be men who walk with God amen okay hang on just a minute this powerpoint is not cooperating Luke which uh can you pull up the heading on that PowerPoint? Okay. Don't worry, this is not a hindrance. Okay, we'll go with this. Lord, I agree. This is good. This is good. So this is what it means to be ready in season and out of season. When you're ready in season and out of season, you don't get nervous. Because you know that it's the Lord doing what the Lord does. Our love relationship with God. So this is what Jesus teaches us is first and foremost. Okay? On that, we want to build. So this is the foundation we talked about, right? This is the only thing we can build upon that is solid, that will stand. Now, on that, we want to put the Word of God. Why? Because God has exalted His Word above His name. That's what this tells us. He's exalted His Word above His name. Okay? So we need to know the Word. We need to memorize it. We need to meditate on it. Anybody know what meditate means? Those of you who have been through book one, what does it mean, Aaron? Absolutely. Carefully and thoughtfully work through what you're being told. To think with a purpose. So whatever you do for a living, you meditate on it. 
doesn't matter if you're on an oil rig or if you're writing insurance estimates. You meditate on what you're doing. You think with a purpose so that you get a desired result and you get paid, right? So doesn't it make sense that a good men's ministry would teach men how to do that? What's another thing that we need? We need to know how to pray, don't we? We need to pray, and we need to know how to pray. Adam, what are you talking about? need to know how to pray. Well, let's, let's look at that. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, and let's look and see what Jesus says about prayer. <clears throat> Let's see what he says about prayer. Also, we probably won't have time this morning, but I'm going to email you some very practical steps and some things that we've seen that give every man of warrior groups uh, the most success, uh, some certain characteristics, certain traits. So I'll shoot that email to you guys if we don't have time to go over it. Matthew 6, verse 9. What does that say? Somebody read it. Anybody? Just the first part of that verse, the A part. Okay, somebody else read a different version. Pray then like this, in this manner therefore pray. Here's what he doesn't say. This then is what you should say. You follow me? That's not what he says. So this is not a prayer that we learn when we're little boys in Sunday school and we just wrote repeat it without giving any thought to what we're saying. This is a template it's the model prayer. This is not the Lord's prayer. The Lord's prayer is in John 17. Okay? This is the model prayer. Jesus is giving us a mock-up for how to approach the living God in boldness. Do you ever wonder that? How do you approach the throne of God boldly? How does that, what does that look like? Well, here's what it looks like. Jesus, and I don't know, again, I don't know, the word becomes flesh and he speaks. I don't know what he was thinking about, may have been thinking about, again, John he may have been thinking about uh, Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Bless his name. But Jesus starts out with worship. Prayer has become a transitional element in our churches. We use it to get people to sit down and shut up. We use it to transition um, from announcements to John coming to lead worship. We use it to transition from John leading worship uh, to Pastor Kent or Pastor Barry uh, delivering a sermon we use it uh to close a sermon right what did jesus say about prayer my father's house shall be called a house of prayer guys we're missing some things here let's look at this closer our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is God's will? What is God's will? Ben, Micah, 6 8. Do you know that verse? Who was it that quoted me that verse last night? Micah 6 8. There's God's will. That's what it looks like for the kingdom to come. For us to love God, love people, seek justice, love mercy, love 
giving people what they don't deserve. Love forgiveness is another way you could say that. And to walk humbly with him. Every element of the kingdom of heaven is formed through relationship. That was God's idea. Now, look carefully at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. It looks like Jesus is telling us to make a request here. Okay? And we call this the war method of prayer. Worship, admit, request. Okay? It looks like Jesus is telling us to start telling God what we want. Let me ask you this question. Who's the bread of life? What do we live on? Bread or every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Matthew 4.4, 4, Deuteronomy 8.3. Absolutely. This is an act of worship. You see that? It's an acknowledgement that my sustenance, my existence does not consist of flesh and bone, but of the Spirit of God inside me, and I'm acknowledging that He is my bread. He is my life. If a man does not eat my flesh and drink my blood, he has no part with me. Guys, we know this. Do you see this? Do you see now how this is a template for us to approach the throne of God? <clears throat> forgive us our trespasses, our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Admit your sin. Pause here. Ask the Lord to show you. If he has the hair on your head numbered and knit you together in your mother's womb, what he told me about this was, Adam, it's a pretty arrogant thing for you to come to me and think you've got everything figured out that you've done that's offended me and keeping me from communion with you today. Why don't you be quiet and listen, and I'll tell you. And then all you have to agree, all you have to do is agree with me, confess it, and we're like this. What does that look like? What are you talking about? Did you just go Catholic on us? No, I didn't. Here's what that looks like. <clears throat> Let's say I go home tonight and I speak harshly to Jess to the point that I make her cry. Are we any less married? No. But where am I going to be sleeping? On the couch. Our relationship's intact, but our fellowship's broken because I have off-ended her. I've offended her. And until I humble myself and go ask for forgiveness, make sense? This does make sense. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, the time waster, the thief, the liar, the killer, the destroyer. Deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's a good idea to pause again after you have admitted your sin and wait for the Lord to tell you if he wants you to make a request. That's all intercessory prayer is, by the way. There's no mystery to that. I hope you guys have an intercessory prayer team here. If you don't, I hope you develop one. Intercession is getting before God, shutting your mouth, opening your heart, listening to what he has to say, agreeing with it, and returning it to him and saying, yes, this is my will now too. That's how you know prayers get answered. I haven't had a prayer journal for years because if I did, all I would do is sit and write every time God answers a prayer. That's, that would be my full-time job. Guys, this is not a mystery, okay? Jesus gave us the keys here. Now, look at verse 14. Forgiveness, your kingdom come. Remember me talking about that? 
Of all the things he could say here, he picks this out. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. John, Aaron, Corey, as I was sharing my testimony at breakfast with you guys this morning, this is what the Lord quoted to me when he told me to go be reconciled to my Father. Doesn't it make sense then that a good men's ministry would teach men how to pray? Not tell them to pray. Tell me something I don't know. I know I need to pray. Teach me how to pray. Well, that's one of the things that we do. Big question. What's necessary for leadership in the body of Christ? Okay. And let me back up right here because I think I skipped Proverbs 16.9. Yep. We get to decide what we value, men. A man walked, I was talking out here in the hall with a man last night, and he said, man, I'm sorry for taking up so much of your time. I said, you didn't take up too much of my time. I get to choose where I spend my time. I can go wherever I want, talk to whoever I want. I chose to stand here and talk with you, okay? This is a glorious and terrifying privilege. Proverbs 16.9 says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Pharaoh planned his way, and the Lord directed his steps. There's another man named Abraham. He planned his way, and the Lord directed his steps. Man, what are you going to do? You get to choose what you value. So let's look at what's necessary for leadership in the body of Christ. <clears throat> because it's lacking. We're not lacking for titles. We're lacking for godly men who are servant leaders. Who see it as a privilege to lay their life down for their brothers in Christ, their sisters in Christ, for the body of Christ. Psalm 89, 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Righteousness. In Noah Webster's Dictionary from 1828, you can found that, find that written, right wiseness. That's how it used to be written and, and spelled. It meant that which is right and wise concerning speaking, thinking, Acting, living. It deals with integrity. It deals with transactions of property, physical property, intellectual property. It deals with the whole moral character of a man. That's the foundation of God's throne. Righteousness and justice. That which is just, that which is true. Now the second part of that verse is mercy and truth go before your face. Mercy, the reality that we don't get what we deserve. And truth. God gives us truth so that we can be set free. <clears throat> so let's look at this. Let's look at first 10. These are the passages, okay? These are the pillars upon which um, this ministry is built and which I believe any solid men's ministry should be built. First Timothy 3, 1 through 12, and Titus 1, 6 through 9. Now that's a lot of stuff, okay? So here's your homework assignment. Whenever I come back, you guys have to have all this memorized. Barry, I'm coming back in May, May 1st, right? No. Seriously, on that note, that, yeah, we have the truth. Guys, memorize the word. I'm just going to take a caveat here from it. Memorize the word. There is a university in Syria, a Muslim university in Syria, and one of the requirements for entrance is memorizing the Quran. 
Students come and for six hours a, a day, for four days, they quote the entire book. Let that sink in. And don't let this collect dust. Okay? <clears throat> Let's break this down. Let's see and understand what's true about this. An elder must be blameless. That does not mean sinless. It means blameless. Okay? We'll talk about that. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent. Okay, we see a lot. We, could, we, have, we see a laundry list of character issues. Are you beginning to see now in Scripture why character trumps gifting? When Satan fell like lightning from heaven, Jesus makes that sweeping non-deity statement about Satan in Luke ten eighteen. The seventy go out; they cast out demons. They Heal the sick, and they say the kingdom of heaven has come near you, and they come back to Jesus, and they go, Jesus, you're not going to believe it. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. He goes, big deal. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Boom. When you're omnipotent, you do the butt kicking. You don't get your butt kicked. When you're omniscient, you don't pick a fight you can't win. And when you're omnipresent, you can't get kicked out anywhere. Isn't that good? <clears throat> Satan hasn't lost any of his gifting because gifts are irrevocable. He hasn't lost his power. What he's lost is his authority. Those are two different words. Jesus says, behold, I give you authority over all the power of the enemy. Now, usually we run in a ditch here, especially where I grew up down in Georgia with some independent and free will primitive Baptist. We start talking about serpents and scorpions, you know. That's not the issue here. There's two different words there, authority and power. Authority, the Greek word is exousia. Power, the Greek word is dunamis. It's the word from which we derive dynamite. It's power to change things permanently. <clears throat> we need both, but what we really need to be crying out for and what we're lacking is authority. Right standing with the Father, communion with the Father, so that we can actually use that dynamite to change the world in a right way. So when Satan fell like lightning from heaven, which power did he lose? Did he lose the power to use his gifting in a right way, or did he lose the power? Because Jesus tells us he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this age. He's the prince of darkness. What are we lacking? And how do you gain authority? Through relationship. Okay? Character trumps gifting every time. That's why this is such a big deal. There are at least 19 different character issues in this passage. I encourage you to search them out, have quiet times on them, memorize them. God's idea. That's what he honors. Marriage and raising children. Faithful to his wife. A man, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. He must manage his own family well. I love this. Look at verse 5. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, Paul asks this question, how can he take care of God's church? That's a rhetorical question. Okay? It starts in your home, man. It starts with you laying your life down for your wife. It starts with you not exasperating your children. It starts with you loving them and training them gently, whether they're a, a son or a daughter. Men, you can't hug and kiss your sons too much. I promise. That's a lie straight from the bowels of hell. 
Marriage and raising children. The Bible has a lot to say about this. Doesn't it make sense then that we would teach men four or five verses on raising children, hold them accountable for how they put them into practice, share quiet times that they've had on these passages. That's why we have a building block for marriage and raising children. Now, money. First of all, let me say this. Money is not filthy lucre. Money's not filthy lucre, okay? God could have done anything he wanted. Cain got kicked out. The ground would not yield itself to him. He went and built the first city. Actually, Nimrod did it. And we began the industrialization of the world, okay? We set up a currency system, an exchange system, and money is born. That's how it happened. God could have stopped it, but he allowed it. Why? I think that he wanted to take that which the devil was using for evil and turn it around for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That's what I think. So money's not filthy lucre. For a Christian, it's a way to advance the kingdom of heaven against the kingdom of hell here on earth. Isn't that good news? Okay. So, not pursuing dishonest gain, not a lover of money, not pursuing dishonest gain. Doesn't look like a whole lot. However, when you understand that 16 of the 46 parables deal with handling wealth and possessions, and one in 10 verses in the Gospels, 10% of the, ver- of the verses in the Gospels, 288 total, deal directly with money. Why? Because money is the root of all evil. Say, no, Adam. The love of money is the root of all evil, of all kinds of evil, okay? Jesus knew this. Paul knew this. That's why... Oh, and 2,300 verses. There are 2,300, over 2,300 verses um, on money throughout the Bible. Any of you go through Financial Peace University? Or have you, do you have that here at the church? That's a wonderful course, wonderful course. Dave Ramsey knows what he's talking about. You guys, I encourage you to, to do that. Um, I think he mentions that in there. So yeah, money's a big deal. We need to get a proper perspective on money. Doesn't it make sense that we would teach a man four or five verses on money, how to meditate on them, and how to put them into practice? Because indebtedness, right? The rich rule over the poor. The borrower is a slave to the lender, Proverbs 22, 7. How can you be a slave over here and a slave to Christ? How does that work? Right? Sex and moral purity. Boy, this is a big one. You guys have you guys have the Conquer series here. Uh, another good tool. Um, just look at the bottom there. Sexual and moral purity is a prerequisite for spiritual leadership. Like I told you before, adultery and idolatry don't just sound alike. In fact, the Bible tells us that every other sin we commit is outside the body, but sexual sin is inside the body. Let me reframe that. Sexual sin is inside the temple of the living God if you're a Christian. You are defiling the temple of the living God whenever you commit sexual sin. You might as well be in Old Testament times and drag a pig into Solomon's temple and slaughter it right there. That's what you're doing inside your heart to your soul every time you look at pornography, every time you masturbate, every time you lust. This is serious, guys. God is with the doers. He's with the doers. And I want to say this right now before I 
in case I don't, again, there's a cross-shaped hole in every one of our hearts. God stamped it there when he created us. And there's nothing that will fit in that hole. You remember the games we had? We had the blocks and the shapes, and we had the, you had the, the board cut out with a square and a circle and a star shape. And if you tried to jam the star, which I did quite a bit, through the square shape when I was a kid, it just didn't fit. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Or when you try to jam the square through the circle, it just didn't fit. You're going to mess everything up and cause a lot of damage. That's what happens when we try to self-medicate with anything. And pornography is just one of them. Alcohol, workahol, shopahol, you, you name it. Pick your poison. He's equal opportunity killer. He doesn't care how you die. He just wants to kill you. That's what he does, okay? Let us not be unaware of the devil's schemes. Let us be wise. This is a huge issue, okay? An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, blameless, above reproach. What does above reproach mean? It doesn't mean that I never make a mistake as an elder. It doesn't mean that I never sin. It doesn't mean that I never offend anyone because Paul says that's not possible. I'm in this earthly body. I'm not glorified yet. I'm not there I haven't received a new body, a new glorified body. I'm in this flesh, and I battle. That which I want to do, I don't. That which I don't want to do, I do. Okay? So let's get a proper perspective on that. What this means is that when I do mess up, no one can beat me to the apology. No one can beat me to when I realize that I've done something. And this realization comes in many different ways. Sometimes God just tells me, I'm driving down the road. He tells me, sometimes I brought my gift to the altar. He says, leave it, get up, and go be reconciled to your brother. Jesus is serious about these things. Sometimes Pastor Barry comes and says, hey, you said this, and this is how it was perceived. This is how it was taken. This was the offense. Well, I mean, that's not how I meant it. That's not how they took it. So will you humble yourself and do the thing? Will you seek forgiveness? Will you be above reproach? That's what we're talking about here. Again, we see character issues coming through in all of this, especially when we're talking about deacons and elders. And all of you should aspire to be deacons and elders. All of you should aspire to be overseers in the house of God. You desire a noble thing, right? If this is what you desire. If you desire benevolence, if you desire to be an elder. What is an elder? It's very simple. An elder labors in the word and doctrine. Preaching and teaching. That's what an elder does. A deacon handles the benevolence work of the church. You guys know this. So if you desire this, let the Lord shape your character in these arenas. Doesn't it make sense that you would know, especially as an elder and a deacon, especially as an overseer in the house of God, doesn't it make sense that you would know 5, 10, 15, 20 verses on sexual and moral purity and how to put them into practice? That's not a lot. There are over 31,000 verses in the Bible. Doesn't that make sense that we would know what the Word of God says? How does God develop character in the life of a man? Because that's what this is all about. That's what the theme of this conference is. That's what God laid on your pastor's heart, hearts for this to be about becoming godly men. So we talked about prayer. We prayed last night. God showed you things. He, he told you things. He taught you things. And if you keep coming back, he'll keep on teaching you things. That's why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. They said, Jesus, don't go. He said, no, it's good that I go. 
How can it be good that you go? You're Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. And he said, well, that's because you don't understand. If I don't go, I can't send the helper. So in 2018, Adam and John, if I were still here and I didn't send the helper, they'd have to get on a plane and fly to Tel Aviv and stand in line for six months to get 30 seconds with me because there are 7 billion people here on planet Earth at that point. But I'm going to send the helper, and he can have 7 billion conversations at one time. Man, how are you communing with God? Because if you're not communing with him, there's a good chance that your character is not being shaped and you're not being transformed to the image of Christ. Just pray. Just sit down and have your quiet time. Meditate on the word. And don't go for an experience. Don't go for an experience. God is to be experienced, but he's not an experiential God. It's his prerogative. If he hides himself, fine. Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Is that the cry of your heart? Don't go after the experience. Moses had an experience with a burning bush. He spent 40 years in the wilderness. Okay, don't, Moses was not after the experiences. He was after submitting to God, after obeying God. <clears throat> How does God develop character in the life of man? Anybody know about Hebrews chapter 11? Okay, the faith chapter. Tell me, you guys just yell back out to me. Tell me some of the heroes of the faith, some, some of our patriarchs. Yeah, yell them out. Keep coming. Absolutely, you're all right, go. Say it loud. Noah. Job. James. Come on. You know more. Isaac. Jacob. I don't think Samson's in that list, but yes. Joseph. Father Abraham. Absolutely. Okay, the list goes on and on. Now, <clears throat> that was just a drop in the bucket. How many of those men led lives that were trouble-free and nice and cushy. No problems at all. How many of those men agreed with God that their character was debased and that they needed to be transformed through hard times? All of them. And we read about them and we preach about them and they're in glory with the living God, Jehovah El Shaddai today. Embrace this. Embrace this. James 1, 2 through 4. And I can imagine it would go something like this. James is Jesus' youngest half-brother, right? Jesus was the firstborn of a virgin. Okay? The Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived. God came upon the Virgin Mary, and she conceived. Then Joseph and Mary had other children after Jesus. And James, probably one of the first elders in the first century church, if not the first, when they were kids, it probably went something like this. I, I told you guys I like to imagine. Look, bro, you got to quit going into the synagogue and showing up the Pharisees. Dad's got a really good cabinet business. <clears throat> Mom's the sweetest lady in town. You're going to get us run out of town. You've got to quit. You've got to quit teaching the elders. 
you got to quit telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees things about Moses and Abraham that they don't know. Okay? You're, go, you're, you're stinking up the show here. And then he watched his sinless brother die on a cross, a criminal's death. He stood there with his mother and the rest of them. And he watched him cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very first letter he wrote, he starts out like this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. The Lord tempts no one. That's why I taught you about conviction and condemnation last night. But he will try us and test us to refine us. There's a, there's a difference. One's righteous, one's unrighteous. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance is different than endurance. I know the Bible talks about endurance, but I can endure a lot of things, and so can you, because you're a man and you're strong. And I can stand in my own will, and I can weather a storm to a certain point. But perseverance is different because perseverance brings in a component of hope. Jesus persevered to the cross. He set his face like flint because he knew who he was in the Father. He knew who he was. He knew that God was not going to take that cup of suffering from him that was mine to drink. He knew that and he trusted him, though he slay him. Perseverance must finish its work. This is not optional if you want to go forward with God as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a brother. As a man, perseverance must finish its work so that you and I may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How many of you know he's coming back for a bride without spot? Amen. God develops character in the life of a man as he goes through hard times and as he suffers. First Peter 4.19 says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I'm always asking myself this question. Because God taught me to ask myself this question. When you just get quiet with the Lord, he's, so, he's such a better teacher than me. He's such a better teacher than... It wouldn't matter if you had Erwin Lutzer here. It wouldn't matter if Billy Graham were standing here preaching to you. If your heart's open. Matter of fact, I was feeling really good about myself. About six months ago. And I was sitting listening to a sermon, and I was critiquing the sermon, and I was going, gosh, I so could have said that better. Are you really not going really to support that with this verse? You really missed that point. Are you really not going to elaborate on that and go any deeper with that? And the Lord came and hijacked the whole moment, and he said, you are so arrogant, son, and I'm so displeased with you. I'm going to be merciful and I'm going to show you what you're doing. It's not about the man up front. The first century church knew this. It's about the living word of God. And even the most poorly delivered message or sermon, if it's taught with sound doctrine, there's gold in it for you. There's silver in it for you. There's precious stones in it for you. 
I went and I apologized to the pastor who had no idea of my thoughts after that service was over. He was stunned. He was stunned. I asked him to forgive me for judging him. I asked him to forgive me for uh, condemning him. He was stunned. Men, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. Okay? Listen to that still, small voice. What question am I always asking myself? Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Adam, are you suffering because this is God's will? Or are you suffering because you're stupid? Well, if I'm suffering because it's God's will, I need to stay here. If I'm suffering because I'm stupid, because I know what to do and I'm not doing it, I need to stop. Okay? Very simple. Use that litmus test when it comes to hard times, going through hard times. Doesn't it make sense that we would teach men how to go through hard times and not just drag across the finish line? He's the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? He is the way and the truth and the life. So the darkness is just being dark. The question is, why is the light not piercing the darkness? The problem isn't Hollywood. The problem isn't television. The problem isn't social media. The problem isn't uh, generation. I hear all this garbage about Generation X, Generation Y, millennials. Look, God encoded on every single living soul's DNA a response to righteousness. Don't tell me that millennials have a short attention span. If you feed them truth, they'll come back. Amen? So we've got to understand what matters and what doesn't. And going through hard times, not just in a survival mode, but in a thrival mode, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. To our natural mind, that sounds like an oxymoron. It sounds like a contradiction in terms. It's not. So doesn't it make sense that we would learn and teach other men how to go through hard times in a way where they thrive? What would happen to the, the men in their sphere of influence if that began to take place? If they saw them clinging to Jesus in hard times? Might they come to church? Might they hear, hear Kent and Barry preach the gospel? Maybe you could preach the gospel to them. Stop asking people where they go to church. That's a terrible question. Ask them if they know Jesus. Does it make sense to you, based on what we've looked at in Scripture, that if this is our foundation, our love relationship with God, and we put these practical, you see this is practical? All of these things are fleshed out Monday through Saturday, right? All of these things are fleshed out in the areas of money, marriage, raising children, sexual and moral purity, work, going through hard times, Okay? If all of these things are in place and working in a man's life and there's authentic accountability there, okay, how you doing, brother? Good. How you doing? Good. That's not accountability. That's a lie, right? But that's how we treat each other. There's authentic accountability. How's your quiet time? Oh, you can't believe what God showed me Tuesday morning. I can't wait to share my quiet time with you. I was in Exodus chapter 14, verses 13 through 15, and I saw how they, they were about to cross the Red Sea. And the, the, uh, the Pharaoh's army was descending on them. And I'm sitting there and I'm reading this. And at first I'm thinking, man, how many thousands of years ago did this happen? And yes, I believe this is true. And then the Lord spoke to me and he said, Adam, I've parted the Red Sea for you. I've given you influence with Jason. You work right beside him all day. 
every day. He's asking you questions about character issues and about sexual purity. Why won't you share the gospel with him? I've already prepared his heart. All you've got to do is step into it and receive the blessing. He's ready to be led to Christ. Oh, and Scott, the one that works across the car from you too, he's there too. Yeah, I know you cussed him out three years ago and got mad and walked out of the shop and slammed the door. That's okay. I've touched and healed that because I've been transforming your character. Man, this is what happens when we begin to understand that ministry to men is practical. And we do the thing, and then God moves on our behalf profoundly. Those are true stories about two men that were on a three-man team, including myself, at Richard Childress Racing, where I worked. And I've discipled them now for three years. Every Wednesday, I go back up and, and lead them and disciple them. I was the biggest jerk. You can't even imagine. I was horrible. And God broke my heart. I was a hater of men. He made me a lover of men, a servant of men. Only God can do this. How did it come? It came by way of my quiet time. Loving God with all my heart, soul, and mind and letting the Word transform and repeatedly hit the reset button of my heart and reprogram me. Do you think then your life might start to count for that which is eternal? Do you see that we may have a good template here for how to build into the lives of men? Does that make sense? Why is spiritual reproduction so important? I said it last night. Jesus Christ... The Messiah. He has a lot of names. Tell me some of his names. Jehovah. Yeshua. Wonderful. Counselor. Those are separate. I love it. Man, you guys are red. Prince of Peace. Lamb of God. Son of God. Son of Man. Son of David. We could go on and on and on. Somebody turn to Revelation 19.13. I love when I say somebody, man, all you guys move. I hear pages turning. I see, I see uh, your chest slide up, your face slide up with your phone. Are you getting anything out of this? Good. What does that say, Revelation nineteen thirteen? Someone with a voice that can project, stand up and read it. I want to ask you before this is read, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Because this is one of his names. Go ahead, sir. When he comes back, that's his name. So I want to ask you again, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? We have the answers, men. We have to go and get them and plant them in our heart. And that's what I want you to take away from this. This is not a cerebral issue. What does the Bible say about that? You can divide all of creation into two camps, Jews and Gentiles, right? We agree on that? Does that make sense? Okay. To the, to the Jews, he's what? A stumbling block. Because he didn't run the Romans out. He didn't set up a kingdom. He didn't come on a white horse first. He came on a donkey. That's not glamorous. We don't like that. We want the Romans out. Israel is the belly button of the world. We, we're, 
when are you going to set the kingdom up? And he goes, you're missing the whole point. To the Gentiles, to you and I, he's foolishness. Don't try to philosophize the God of the universe. You won't win. Satan's the greatest philosopher that ever walked the planet. God's never learned anything. He's never stepped into a place and gone, oh, this is nice. Somebody, Peter, go, go find John. Bring him over here. I want to reveal this to him so he can go write another book. That's never happened. Okay? We've got to understand what he says about who we are, come into agreement with it, and what he says about us is practical. What he says about us is doable. And he hasn't left us without an instruction manual. Amen? A.W. Tozer said it like this. The reason most Christians don't hear God's voice is because they're not already doing the 31,104 things he's said to do. Boy, that hit me like a ton of bricks when I heard it. And it ramped up my zeal for memorizing and meditating on the Word of God. <clears throat> Men, here's the reality. This is from the National Training Laboratories, which is up in Bethel, Maine. And basically what they are, Aaron, where are you? It's, a, it's an institute that teaches teachers how to teach. They've studied, they understand through science how the brain that God made retains knowledge to the point that it actually goes and does the thing that's being put in. And here's what they found. A lecture, I'm not kidding myself. I'm standing up here lecturing you. I'm not training you. This is a training session. I'm, I need to be careful with that. Training is where you actually go do stuff. Telling is not teaching, and teaching is not training. Okay? Telling is not teaching, and teaching is not training. <clears throat> I'm lecturing right now. If you could remember everything I said and went out of here, then the ticket price would be about a million dollars. It doesn't work that way, though. And that's good news because God wants to teach you these things. He may use me to introduce them or to refresh them or to remind them, but he wants to teach you these things. The veil is torn. If you're getting the, the majority of your meat, of your bread, of your spiritual food from Pastor Kent or Pastor Barry, you're in a bad place, and so are they. You know what their primary job is as pastors and as preachers here? It's to shepherd the flock, to protect the flock, and to labor in the word and doctrine, in preaching and in teaching. They prepare a message. They spend 10, 20, 40 hours a week preparing a message that God pours through them. And the rain that God sends down from heaven falls on fallow ground. Because Monday through Saturday, we go through the motions. We don't memorize the word. We don't meditate on the word. We don't have our quiet time. We don't pray. We don't get quiet before the Lord and listen. And so it falls on fallow ground. It costs Jesus everything. It costs God everything for you to be able to have this intimate relationship with him, to enter the holy of holies. Reading, 10%. Audiovisual, 20%. We're climbing the ladder. I got a PowerPoint. You guys have been reading along. Discussion group, we haven't done much of that. Now question, where of this pyramid between the practice by doing and the discussion, discussion group, if you drew a line right there and separate that into two different segments of that pyramid, where do we spend most of our time in church functioning? In the lower half or the upper half? 
the upper half. So again, I'll ask you, if we want different results, are we going to have to do something different? Are we going to have to do something different? Yes, we're going to have to do something different. And the vast majority of that different thing happens Monday through Saturday in your small group, on Wednesday nights here, in your personal life, at home, at work. I learned to have a quiet time sitting in my pickup truck in RCR's parking lot and sitting on the toilet. Man, just do it. Don't tell me you're too busy. God's not going to make a 25th hour or an 8th day for you. You get to choose what you value, okay? Now, practice by doing. Look at the retention rate. He can teach me about a $7 million piece of equipment because he's practiced it. And he's taught others how to do it. When you teach, this is a mystery. Jesus says at the end of the Great Commission, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. I can't describe that joy to you, but when you go and you teach truth, when you practice truth, when you pass truth on, when you model truth to others, it presses it so deeply into your heart, it's indescribable. You have an increased sense of his presence. You have an increased sense of his love because you're doing that which he's commanded you to do. John 14, 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. God's with the doers. Okay? And this is independent of your background. This is independent of your socioeconomic class. It's independent of your IQ. Real quickly, look at Acts 4, 13 through 14. Oh, this is good. This is good. Where's Acts? It's not after Hebrews. Anybody ever read the book of Acts? It's messy, isn't it? It takes them a while to figure things out. They have arguments. They have to back up and punt. That's okay. They're men. God knows this. He gives grace. Don't be afraid to mess up. Don't try to be Jesus. Don't try to never mess up. Acts chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. I want someone to read that for me, please. Don't everybody, there you go. Trent, thank you. When they saw that Adam had a high school education and that he was a welder by trade, they marveled. And they said, what, what has gone on here? He doesn't have a seminary degree. He's never been to Bible college. He's not been venerated or consecrated or set up. and He must have been with Jesus. This can be said of you. Every one of us, this can be said of. Isn't this good news? Isn't this good news? This pleases God. God loves this. God's not impressed with how much you know. He's not impressed with how many verses I've memorized. He's not impressed with any of that. What is he impressed with? What will he not despise? A humble and contrite heart. Yes, a relationship with Jesus, which leads to a deeper relationship with Jesus. A humble and a contrite heart he won't despise. Now, we've added this because we know that this matters and this is the most important thing, that the Word of God transforms our hearts. So we memorize and meditate on the Word. If you're going to spend time in a small group, if you're going to spend time working with men, caring for another man's soul. Don't you want to spend most of it functioning in this area down here? Doesn't that make sense? So that we'll have the results that we desire. Again, this was God's idea. Active learning, passive learning. Passive learning, sit and listen. Active learning, learn and do. 
what do you want to do? God's made you to get up, to walk, to move, to do things with your hands. Don't ask him to bless the work of your hands if you're not doing his work. Don't ask him to direct your steps if you won't put one foot in front of the other. Right? This is how we get along. And learning takes place most effectively through these teaching methods of active learning. Begin to disciple other men. Pray and ask the Lord. You probably already know who these men are. Ask the Lord to bring men on your path for you to care for them, for you to care for their souls. If the Lord wills, I'll come back at another time and we'll talk all about that. Here's the reality. Men will not reproduce something that isn't relevant to them. Make sense? They won't reproduce something they're not committed to. Any hunters in here? That's a dumb question. Any hunters in here? Yeah, thank you. If I told you I had a gun that could shoot with no recoil and carry a flat trajectory for five miles, no deviation, even considering windage, no deviation greater than a quarter of an inch, you'd call me a liar, right? What if I took it out and I demonstrated it for you? And I said, here, have it. Would you take it? Would you take the gun? Yes, you would. You'd go and you'd become the most famous hunter in, in the Dakotas. That's what we have here spiritually. We have a straight shooting, never deviating, flat, perfect trajectory for how to become godly men. And we get the privilege of searching it out and finding the answers and putting them into practice. Not even though we don't understand how God's going to move on our behalf, but especially though we don't understand. Tattoos optional. This is Robbie, second degree black belt, barbecue restaurant owner and manager. That's Lonnie right there, the author of Every Man a Warrior and a dear friend of mine. That man has discipled me for several years. And Robbie came to me about three years ago and he said, I've never been in a fight I couldn't win. But pornography's kicking my butt. And I've heard you can help. And I said, I, I can. And so we began. And he learned how to have a quiet time, how to memorize and meditate on the Word. And he has no desire for pornography. Man, this is a true story. He doesn't slip. He's clean and free. Because every day he gets up and he starts, Our Father, who art in heaven. My Father, who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. He goes into the secret place and he gets that cross-shaped hole in his heart filled up day after day with Jesus. He doesn't desire that anymore. I didn't say he didn't get tempted. I said he doesn't desire it anymore. He's not an exclusive case. You're looking at another one right here. Okay? <clears throat> the key to a successful multiplying men's ministry is that we help men win the battles they fight every day. That's what I'm talking about when I say succeed in life. We help men win the battles that they fight every day. You guys, it's break time. Uh, it's 10.36. Again, I'll email this session to Barry, so if anybody wants it, you, you're welcome to review the slides, and I'll give you my notes for it as well if you like that. So 
You can get with Pastor Barry if he wants to give that to you. Get up, go enjoy some time, some fellowship. Uh, I just want to leave this with you too. Purpose to talk about spiritual things while you're here with your brothers. There's nothing wrong with talking about trucks. There's nothing wrong with talking about work. There's nothing wrong with talking about sports at all. Choose what you value. Spend time having real conversation, authentic conversation, and begin now entering into deeper accountability with your brothers. Talk about how you can become godly men and what you're going to do to become godly men. All right. Um, first, I have to uh, say I'm grateful that God brought us all here together to hear this, uh, my testimony for him. Uh, he's an amazing and an awesome God that we serve. Uh, as a child... I was brought up in a Christian home. My grandfather was a Southern Baptist preacher, and uh, I, I looked up to him a lot. He was the man that I wanted to be. Uh, my dad was Air Force, so we moved around a lot, um, slowly pulling my faith away. Uh, we stopped going to church. We only we only went when we visited my grandfather. And then in high school, he passed away. I was a football player. So I tried to fit into different crowds. I couldn't find uh, the place that I thought I needed to be. And with that, I followed the wrong crowds. Um, I started drinking, doing drugs, um, basically lost all faith in Christ. I I no longer had my connection that I had had when I was a child. And then it continued into my 20s, mid-20s, I uh, I felt like an empty shell. I felt like uh, a lost soul. I didn't know what my purpose was on earth. I was able to, to get rid of drugs, to stop doing those, but I couldn't get rid of the alcoholism, the tobacco use, the um, and still had no connection with Christ. Um, I I felt like I lived most of my life uh, like something was missing like I was was not whole Um, I I prayed but now that I look back at it I only prayed when I was in trouble or I needed something Um, I was a very selfish person and it was on February 20, 20th of this year. I, I had relapsed on February 19th. And February 20th, I felt uh, the shame, the guilt. It was heavier than any time before. And I know that that was God putting it on my heart, letting me know that uh, he was there. I began to pray. I, I reached out to to people that I knew would help me, and they prayed with me. Um, that whole week, I continued to pray, and I, I was—I had the feeling that I needed to be in church on Sunday, on that next Sunday. So I made sure that I took off work, I work weekends. I made sure I took off work to make it here on February 25th. Um, I prayed that... He gave me guidance and the strength to get through 
everything that I was going through, the the guilt of of my sins, the guilt of my whole life of sin since I had shot him out. It was February 25th. Um, Pastor Barry was given the sermon on ways to build our commitment with Jesus. And it was Mark 2 through, or Mark 2, 13 through 17 that we were going through. And as we were going through it, it was, I can remember, um, it was about Levi and how, basically how big of a sinner he was. And for, for God to accept him, I thought to myself, who am I to keep him out of my life? Um, he accepts me for my sins. So I felt like the sermon or the message felt like Pastor Barry was talking to only me, even though it was full in here. I, I felt like that message was geared towards me. I felt like he was looking at me the whole time that he was standing here. Um, it was at that time that I had closed my tear-filled eyes. Um, I, I cried the whole sermon. but And I had said that I closed my eyes and I told Christ that I am broken and I surrender to you. I surrender everything I have and I need you. I said, I need you in my life, not just today, not just because I felt guilty, but I need you in my life every day for the rest of my life. I said, I, sur- I told him I surrender and that I am yours. Do with me what you will. And I am your servant. I am here to serve you, Lord. And at that moment, I felt so much relief. I felt forgiven, and I felt a joy that I couldn't explain. So once I felt that, I guess after after years of resentment towards myself, I was finally able to forgive myself also. I am his, and I will serve him in any way he wants me to. I have not had the desire for alcohol or tobacco since that day, February 25th. Um, And I have had nothing but the desire to live for him and do what he asks of me. I feel in my heart that once I accepted Christ... As my Lord and Savior, my life finally began. And I want to share with everyone the love that Christ has for us. I am excited to have this new life. And I want to set an example for my wife, my kids, and my friends that I am serious about the love I have for God. I want to thank Pastor Trent, or I want to thank Trent, Pastor Barry. And everyone at First Baptist for helping me open my heart and build my relationship with God. And I wrote down a scripture that I read every morning after I pray. And it's Luke 9, 23 and 24. And 
like I said, I, I read it every morning, but I turn back to it all throughout the day. Um, I work for the railroad, and I have a lot of time to pray and listen to uh, different sermons and listen to worship. So 9.23, Luke 9.23, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And thank you for letting me share this testimony. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you, Jimmy. Adam, we'll have you come back up here, buddy. Good luck following that one. <laughs> I've still got half a donut to finish. I was enjoying that. <laughs> I was talking while you guys were eating. Trent, you and I had the conversation about championing testimony. Get the brother, give me a hug. And this is how we overcome, because that's what the Word of God tells us. We overcome by two things. What are they? The blood of the Lamb and the testimony. James, keep it up. Brother, keep it up. Um, men, share your testimony. Practice your testimony. Write it out. Hone it. God has seen fit to give us the privilege of shining His light in a dark world and exposing the enemy and evil for what it really is. And that comes by way of our testimony. Brother, that is, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Trent, you going to develop that here? All right. All right. <clears throat> I have a plane that takes off in a little bit. Um, I'm going to be brief. I'm not going to elaborate on this a whole lot. Uh, I'm, I'm note-free on this. And I boast only in Christ when I say that. The Lord showed me a few years ago as I was meditating on John 3.30. You guys know that verse? The greatest man ever born of a woman, according to Jesus Christ, is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, Adam, if you're going to be my spokesman, there should be an obvious and apparent increase in the percent words of me that come out of your mouth and an obvious and an apparent decrease in the percent words of you that come out of your mouth. And so I purpose to talk about that which I know 
I don't try to talk about things that I don't know or I don't understand. I'm not saying I understand them fully. And I purpose to let that be my testimony. Um, let's look at Matthew 22, 36. No, let's go 34. 34 through 38. I'm not neglecting verses 39 and 40. <clears throat> But for the time we have and the intent and the purpose that I've been given here today, we're not going to focus on verses 39 and 40. We've got to get verse 37 right before 39 and 40 can happen. Because there's no love apart from the Father. I'm only able to love. James is only able to love because he was first loved. And the more that we step into the knowledge of that love, and I'm not talking about intelligence. I'm not talking about a cerebral knowledge. Satan knows more scripture than you will ever know. Okay? Are you tracking with me? I'm talking about coronary knowledge. Gnosko. The knowing in the heart. Okay? Until we step into greater depths... Until we climb to greater heights and walk to greater widths and breadths of the love that he has for us, we can't effectively love other people. John MacArthur goes so far as to say, Christians are the only people who have the right to counsel anyone. Period. Because there is no wisdom or counsel, or knowledge, or understanding against Jehovah. So if our eyes have been opened and we see that which is true for eternity, we're the only ones that have a right to counsel with any good and lasting implications. That makes sense to me. So again, I ask you the question, from where do you want to minister? From where do you want to live? From where do you want to operate in this life? If it's not from the standpoint of your love relationship with Jesus Christ, you're instantly and always at a handicap. So let's look at this passage. Let's see what Jesus says about loving God. Father, I praise you and thank you that your love is perfect. God, that when things are bad, you're good. And that when things are good, you're still good. That you're unchanging. And that you love me. And you love us. You love the world. Not in spite of our sin, but because of our sin. And so Lord, we just bow before you again right now and we acknowledge that you alone are God. You are God and we are not. And I praise you and thank you for the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for your cross and for your blood that no other man can claim. We praise you, Lamb of God, Lion of Judah. Amen. This is the most excited I get when I get to speak. And here's why. 
every religion in the world is based on a set of rules except Christianity. It's a central component that makes it capital T true. It's based on relationship. This marvelous, glorious mystery that the sovereign, uncreated creator of all things wants to have a conversation with me, wants to know about my day, and wants to teach me how to have a better one and how to have them forever with him. Is that good news? Amen. This is where we find ourselves. Now, backdrop. Here's what's going on. You got to understand that in Jesus' day, there was no carnal, secular, I'm sorry, not, there was carnal. There was no secular life and then religious life. Life was integrated. Okay? Jerusalem, Israel was the Holy Land. Mount Zion is the navel of the world, it's the birthplace. Okay? And life was integrated for them. What does that mean? It means that their courts, their judicial system was tied with the church, the synagogue. All of that was tied together. Okay? So when Jesus made his announcement, his inaugural speech, that he's come to bind up broken hearts and set captives free, they were stunned because they thought that he, what he would bring is, is judicial power, that he would make those things right, that he would make the oppression in, right now today on Saturday morning in Minot, North Dakota, that he would make all that go away. But he had bigger plans. He had better plans. He had complete plans. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you guys know about them? Okay? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. <clears throat> Kind of like Republicans and Democrats. Uh, that's a loose analogy, but go with me here, okay? <laughs> Basically, they were both teachers. They were both scribes, keepers of the law, all this type of thing. They didn't have Bibles on their coffee tables, right? Because a lot of this hadn't been written yet. The prophets, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, okay, all that. But there weren't scrolls in everyone's houses. They were keepers of the law, and they were corrupt, and they manipulated the law, and they maligned things, and they were greedy, and they were thieves, and all these other things that we know about. Now, the main difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees was that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and the Pharisees did. Okay? So that's one of the, one of the main differences. But what you need to understand, in fact, the Pharisees are called by Jesus sons of Satan. At another point, it's written in red. Jesus calls them sons of Satan. Okay? Their hearts were hardened beyond. So, what's going on here? And I love, I'm going to talk about this for just a second. I love what happens just prior to this. If you read 23 through 33, there's a story there. And the Sadducees come up to Jesus and they concoct this ridiculous story. I think they made the whole thing up, personally. Have you ever known a woman that married seven brothers? Like she was married to seven men, they were all brothers, and she outlived all of them. Well, that's what they tell Jesus. Now, I don't know if it was true or not. I, th I think they made it up. I think they concocted it. They ask him this thorny theological question. What is theology? Theos, God. Remember, Israel is a theocracy. We're a democracy. Government by the people, for the people. Okay? Israel was a theocracy. God ruled 
through men who were supposed to be godly and righteous, right? That's how it worked. So they ask him this thorny theological question, ology, study, God study. They ask him this question about how they had studied God. And they said, you know, this woman was married to all these men. They were all brothers. They've all died. Tell us at the resurrection, because they don't believe in the resurrection. So see, that's the, that's the caveat. That's the bend. That's the crux of their argument right there. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? <laughs> and Jesus, and only the way Jesus can, can do. What does he say? Let's look at what he says. Matthew twenty two twenty nine. 29. You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Wait a minute. If these guys came in here right now, they'd kick me off the stage and they could quote to you the first five books of the Bible that you're holding. And Jesus tells them they're in error because they don't know the Scriptures and they don't know the power of God. And he goes on here. He says... In the resurrection, so immediately he acknowledges there is a resurrection. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So boom, in one sentence, the word becomes flesh and he dispels, completely shatters their theology. If you have any theology that says anything other than what we're about to read next, you need to fall on your face before God, cry out to him for mercy, and ask him to shatter it. Because this is what Jesus says is first and greatest. Don't be found in error on this matter. I talked to you about Christianity Today and what they told us about pastors and pornography. They also released another study last year on the top 100 doctrines of the Bible. What is doctrine? Sound teaching. Biblical teaching. Guess where the great commandment fell on the list of top 100 doctrines of the Bible? I wish. Any other guesses? I wish. It wasn't on the list. And yet it's what our Savior says is first and greatest. Be ready to step into freedom. Verse 34, it starts and it records. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. Remember the conversation he just had with them. He'd shut them up. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them an expert in the law. Remember I told you that this is integrated society. So he would have been practicing law like a lawyer in the United States of America. And he would have been doing it from Genesis. He would have been making his arguments from Exodus. He would have been deposing from Leviticus. Make sense? This is heavy duty stuff. This expert in the law was a lawyer and he tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, now I'm going to stop right here and I'm going to tell you a story. I have quoted this passage in learning it, being accountable to my brothers in Christ, teaching on it and preaching on it. It's safe to say easily over a thousand times. Summer of 2016, I'm laying in my bed and my arm is so numb 
and I had to pee so bad, but I didn't want to roll over yet. Don't act like you guys don't know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> okay? I'm, 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 I'm coming into consciousness, but I'm not there yet. Okay? I hear you. And so I finally, I muster the energy to roll over, and I'm rolling over, and I'm still, I don't, I don't even want to open my eyes yet, you know? You know that feeling? I didn't have to be up. It was early, too. It was about 5.30 in the morning. And because I feed on the Word now instead of pornography, because I feed on the Word now instead of uh, lifting weights in a gym, because I, because I feed on the Word... <sighs> Often it puts me to sleep and wakes me up. And I'm running this passage through my head. And I'm taking, I'm guessing, probably four or five minutes to get to the point to where I just got with you to quote this. And I'm just savoring every word. I, I mean, it's, it's the bread of life. I'm breaking my fast. I'm having breakfast. I'm waking up. Okay? And man, it's sweet. And I get to this, this word. There's two of them. Jesus replied, and I sat straight up, and I threw the covers off, and I went straight out of our bedroom, through the kitchen, down the hall, and into my office, and I was on my face. I wanted to write stuff. I wanted to write God a letter and tell him how much I loved him, I wanted, but I couldn't. I could just say, Jesus, 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 at the reality that he replied. You see that? Look at, look at the Scripture. You see that? Verse 37, your version may say, Jesus said to him. Jesus responded. Jesus replied. Jesus is about to give us the key to all of life. This life and life everlasting. He's replied then. He's replied through the prophets Every word that they've spoken has come to pass and is perfect and will continue. Not one jot, not one tittle. And he's replying to us here today. And let's see what he says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now you can try all you want. I've done it. I've literally written it out. Study the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Think about the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Talk about the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Read about the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Listen to good things about the Lord your God with all your... Nothing else fits. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This capacity to love and be loved is unique to us. It's unique and it separates us from all creation. He breathed life into us. Everything else he spoke into existence. You want another teaching? You want another understanding? You want a greater foundation for intimacy? I believe that God reached down into the earth and picked up the earth and had intimacy with the earth as he breathed life into the man. It was not an objective thing. It was not a distant thing. It was not an obtuse thing. It was an intimate relationship. We are made in his image, and we're made to love him. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Now, I don't know what they were thinking here, but the Pharisees could have been thinking something like, 
you know, if he says any one of the Ten Commandments, we could argue that the others are, well, they're all there, right? They're the big ten. I think that might have been what he was thinking. What do you guys think? Okay. Jesus did go right to the very first one, right to the top. Okay. But what he did there for us was he stepped right over their trap and gave us a glimpse into the very heart of God. You see how freeing that is. I don't know what my IQ is, but it's not Dean's. I don't know what Dean's IQ is, but there could come another man in here that's higher than his. I don't have a whole lot of money. I know there are guys, I know there are some of you that have a whole lot more money than me. The North name is not a particularly great heritage and, 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 and a, uh, a, royal t- a royal name. Some of you may have royal blood in you. I've got royal blood in me. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because I have a relationship with him. Because we have a relationship with him. He says, I am the living God. Every other God is false. Every other God is false. Nobody even claims to do the things that Jesus claims to do. He's risen from the grave. He's conquered death, hell, and the grave so that you and I can have a love relationship with him. He stepped right over that theological issue and he said, let me give you sound doctrine. Let me give you teaching straight from the heart, the Urim and the Thummim of God. He wants you to love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. I want to talk about the soul for a minute. The soul divides between what? I'm sorry. The sword divides between what? Soul and spirit. What does that mean? Because those aren't synonyms. Soul and spirit are not the same thing. Divides between joint and marrow, right? This is what we're looking at right now. This is the living Word of God. Your soul is made up of your mind, your will, and your emotions. Your spirit is made up of the wisdom of God, communion with the Father, and conscience. Your Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit, that still small voice living inside of you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Quiet your soul. What does that look like, Adam? How do I do that? What does that mean? What's the difference between soul and spirit? Mind, will, and emotions, wisdom, communion, and conscience. What combats my mind? When I'm vexed, when I can't figure something out, when I need an answer, when I'm off base, where do I go to find the answer? The wisdom of God. Will. Adam's will is not good because it's selfish. It's indignant. It's self-seeking and self-serving. So what combats Adam's will? The other part of his soul. The next part of his soul. Communion. Did you feel that when you prayed last night? When you came down here and you surrendered your will to God and he began to replace it with his will and conscience. My emotions, they're given by God in and of themselves. They're neither good nor bad. However, what I do with them, that's a different story. 
The Holy Spirit will tell me how to use what I'm feeling in order to glorify Him, in order to love Him. There's the division of the soul and the spirit. So to the spirit. What you focus on is what you make room for. What you focus on is what you make room for. Let's look back at the living word. Jesus says in verse 38, this is the first and greatest commandment. Now, let me remind you, we've talked about this several times already. He's the word become flesh, right? He dwelt among us, right? Okay. He can say anything he wants here. He didn't need to choose his words wisely. He didn't need to weigh his words. He's the word become flesh. He knows the right response. The response of his lips always is the heart of God. He says, I don't do anything I don't see the Father doing. I don't do anything that I don't see the Father doing. If the Father's doing this, I'm doing this. If he's doing that, I'm doing that. If he's not doing this, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Okay? And this is what he tells us. This is the first and greatest commandment. This is number one. There's no other priority. There is so much freedom in that. Adam, you can't get smart enough to attain God. Adam, you can't get rich enough to attain God. Adam, you can't get, you can't climb and get God. You get God when you acknowledge that you cannot do anything other than have Him through His Son. Jesus Christ, resting in His presence, abiding in Him, trusting in Him, learning His Word. It's a privilege. It's free. It's so freeing. There's no conditions on this. For freedom's sake, Jesus has set us free. Think about that. He set us free for freedom's sake so that we would understand more and more and more each day that passes by what it means to walk with Him, what it means to talk with Him, what it means to abide with Him. And this is the greatest commandment. If we will focus on this, if we will fix our hearts and our souls and our minds on this, you cannot fathom the goodness that comes with it. You cannot fathom. Romans 2, 4 says it's His goodness that leads us to repentance. That doesn't fly with the preaching I grew up with. It's His goodness that leads us to repentance. God is good. He longs to be good. Why don't we know better that He is good? Is it that we don't believe these words? Is it that we don't believe that as His sons we're truly free? Is it that we don't believe that He wants to meet us in the secret place? Is it that we don't humble ourselves, quiet our soul, and get in His presence? I know these are my problems. This is always my problem. Anytime I'm away, anytime I'm off, anytime I'm debased, anytime I'm deluded, anytime I'm having a problem, it's because I'm not focusing on the love of God. Because I'm not abiding in Christ. What does it mean to abide? Is anybody given a thought to being blown away in a blizzard or a tornado while we've been in this building? Anybody? Have you thought that? Well, why not? It could be a reality. Because you're abiding in the safety of this building. That's what it means to abide in Christ. To give no thought. To truly rest. 
So the peace that you have right now about not, buying, not being killed by a natural disaster is the same peace that he's offering you right here. To abide in him, to rest in his love. Like a weaned child with its mother, I've quieted my soul. Said the greatest warrior ever, not named Jesus Christ. You are free to love and be loved. You are free to love and be loved by Jesus Christ. Now let's go on and look at 38 and 39. And the second is like it. Your version may say like unto it. He doesn't say the second is right beside it or equal to it, but like it. James is like me, but he's not me. Okay? Greg is like me, but he's not me. Okay? The second is like it. Now, this is number two on Jesus' priority list. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Every word of God that's ever been written and spoken, every jot and every tittle that's more secure than heaven and earth, hangs on these two commandments. I believe that we are not fulfilling the Great Commission and making disciples. We're making converts. That's not what Jesus said do. He didn't say make converts. He said make disciples. Men who, like James said, will take up their cross daily and follow him. How do you build a man like Peter who says, okay, you Romans are the best in the world at killing people? Grant me this dying wish. I'm not worthy. I denied my Savior. Will you please crucify me upside down? Thank you. How do you build a man like that? You teach him to love God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his mind. How do you build this in your own life? You go to the Word of God and you let the Holy Spirit teach you what it means to abide in Jesus Christ. The abiding that I'm talking about, you guys can find this in John chapter 15. Man, that's what you want. Nothing else works. Nothing else works. And this is available exponentially, increasingly, limitlessly to all of us who will just go after him. It's an altogether ridiculous thing for you and I to ask the question, what is a sin? Is that a sin? Is that a sin? If you have had your eyes opened and you know the truth of Jesus Christ, don't ask if it's a sin. Ask if it helps you run to God. People ask me all the time, Adam, I I, I got this... You know, I'm single, and I don't want to, you know, have sex before marriage. Um, and we fooled around a little bit, but, you know, whenever we're, she's over at my house and, you know, it gets late, especially it's on the weekend, man, it's really hard. We haven't gone all the way, but it's really hard. Get out of the house. Don't ask me where the line is. Don't, don't, don't figure out where the line is and come as close to the line as you can. Because you've already partnered with the enemy. Okay? And at that point, he might just push you right over. Run from the line. Get out of the house. Okay? Set yourself a curfew. Do the thing. Why? Because you're dogmatic. 
because you're self-disciplined. No, because you love Jesus Christ. And you understand that if that woman is the woman that you're to marry, God has given you your masculinity to offer it to her at the right time and the right place as a covering of protection over her so that he can create a generation that will love him and serve him better than you and your wife. How can you do that? How can a man do that? How can he do that? By loving God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his mind. Loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and increasingly perceiving the love of the Father back is the answer for everything. I have no capacity to love outside of the capacity that he's given me. None whatsoever. This is the first, and this is the greatest. Men, start here. If you're already here, good. Stay here. Camp out here. Set up a tent here. Build a house here. Live and abide in the reality that Jesus Christ is love. And he's not condemning. And that all he asks of us, first and foremost, is the easiest thing that all of us can do, which is love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. Now, this is the point where somebody needs to stand up and say, how do I do that? Ruin the sermon. How do I do that? Wait for it. You ready? Spend time with him. That's it. No elaboration. No commentary. Spend time with your king, your savior. And hear him call you friend. There's nothing sweeter. Father, I praise you and thank you for your goodness and your mercy. God, I thank you that it was your idea that we enter into a relationship with you. God, everything else is false. Everything else is false. You are the one true God. Jesus, we praise you and we love you. Son of man, son of God. Father, I pray that you would stir in these men's hearts that you would have mercy on all of us, that you would give us grace, that we would seek your face, Lord. I pray that every man in this room would become a God chaser, that they would run hard after you, and that they would sit and be quiet in your presence that they would crave and that they would hunger, they would thirst for your presence. To know you and to be known by you and that that would be enough. God, take them fast to the point where that is enough. That they don't need any experience that the world can offer. They don't need any experience that you may want to give. All they want is you. Come thou fount. of every blessing 
in the hearts and the souls and the minds in this room. And God, do it for your glory. Glorify yourself in Minot. Glorify yourself down in Dickinson. Glorify yourself in this land. Jesus, we believe that if we exalt you, you will draw all men to yourself. We're not worthy, but because you tell us to, we want to be a part of that. God calls these men to be men who take up their cross and follow you daily. Amen.